Good morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> it's so good to see everyone this morning. As Billy said, uh, my name is Hugh, and uh, I serve on the leadership uh, team here at SCC Midland. I was actually scheduled to teach last Sunday, but was not able to, so I, you know, Billy and I swapped spots, and so he did the first 12 or so verses of um, chapter 2, and I'm going to finish out uh, the last several verses of chapter 1 of John. <clears throat> um, so, as you, you know, just in terms of reminder, especially for those maybe who are visiting for the first time, we're currently preaching through the Gospel of John, which commenced uh, a few weeks back, and so we've covered, at, at least in chapter 1, uh, the first 35 verses, and, um, and as I said, Billy yeah, covered the first 12 verses of chapter 2 last week. Um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Allen preached the previous, uh, preach, uh, uh, he covered First uh, John 19 to 34, and the title of his message was, We Look to Jesus, Not Ourselves to be cleansed from sin and empowered for Christian living. And uh, this is borne out by the test, you know, testimony of a witness of John the Baptist concerning Jesus as he pointed the people to Christ. Um, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's both Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews. And it, pointed away from himself. Well, this morning we're going to cover verses uh, 35 through 51, and here we're going to see the very first converts uh, to Christianity, at least what's in this, recorded in the scripture. Um, and these, of course, were the first disciples of Jesus. Um, so let's go ahead and we're going to read this, uh, this, this passage. Um, uh, why don't we stand as, as we do that? <clears throat> it says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see, and you will see. So they came and saw where we were staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who <coughs> excuse me, heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, Sahida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael <coughs> excuse me, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, to whom, in whom there is no God. Nathanael answered, <clears throat> Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
<clears throat> as I was preparing for this uh, passage, um, you may be seated, sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my prayer really, you know, um, and my desire, my hope this morning is that, you know, um, I, I wrote it out, so I'll just say it rather than shut my eyes and pray about, you know, but I pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word and use this passage to open the eyes and hearts of those who do not know him as Lord and Savior and encourage and strengthen the hearts and faith of those who already know him. <clears throat> that his word uh, would not return void but accomplish that for which he sent it. The title of the message is pretty simple. Jesus' public ministry begins. Didn't try to get too creative with it. <laughs> um, the first disciples. Then the main point of the message, the passage is this. As we endeavor to make new disciples and mature existing ones, our role as Christians is to point them away from ourselves and point them to Jesus Christ. This was very evident in the testimony of John the Baptist found in the preceding verses covered by Alan. And I think uh, it will also be very evident in this morning's passage as we see the, the first believers coming to faith in Christ. <clears throat> or put yourself in the shoes of a, a Jewish person at, around that time when Jesus appeared on the scene. Kind of hard to do, probably, <laughs> but you know, uh, over many centuries, um, and certainly at that time, uh, there was anxious waiting and great anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, of whom Moses, uh, the Old Testament prophets, the Psalms, and others wrote about, one who would come to save to rescue his people from bondage as foreshadowed in the Passover and the exodus of God's people out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> the scriptures also spoke of a forerunner, a prophet, who would appear on the scene to announce the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah and to re reveal who he is to the people. And we've seen that, of course, in the first several verses of John chapter 1. Well, fast forward <clears throat> to John the Baptist arriving on the scene to announce that indeed the Messiah is here and to prepare the hearts of the people to receive their long-awaited awaited king and savior. His message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. <clears throat> well, one would think that once Jesus arrived on the scene, the people especially his own people, the Jews, would welcome him with open arms and flock to him. But that was not the case, was it? There, were, there was certainly some flocking to him in some senses because multitudes followed him. But we're going to look at a passage this morning to see what their real motives were in following him. <clears throat> um, John tells us, though, in, in, in John 1, 11 through 14, he says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, beginning in verse 35, we see the start, the beginning of many who would uh, receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have life in his name. Interestingly, in our passage for this morning, we see three really different ways, there may even be more than that, uh, by which the first disciples were evangelized, which resulted in conversions. Perhaps we could learn uh, a lot from these examples in our own efforts at evangelism, whether individually on a person-to-person -person basis or corporately. Um, but notice that their evangelism was based on Jesus being proclaimed 
as the, as the Christ, the Messiah, and not anything else. <clears throat> and think these will unfold as we look at each situation. Each situation stands on its own merit and has some really interesting details associated with these. So we'll, we'll look at each one separately. So first we're going to look at the conversion of John, of Andrew and John. Right, so this is John, the, the guy who actually wrote this, this, this letter, not the letter, the, the, this gospel. <clears throat> He's not named particularly in that passage, but many do believe that's who he's referring to, and you'll see her in a minute. Um, the first two uh, disciples of John the Baptist, uh, the first two converts were disciples of John the Baptist. One of them is identified as Andrew, um, and the other is not named. But many Bible scholars and commentators believe he, he was John, the author of the gospel, who chose to be unnamed. If you notice, he doesn't name himself throughout the gospel, you know, the, the, the entire book. These two disciples of John the Baptist were with him when, upon seeing Jesus a second time, he declared, uh, he declared for a second time, in fact, as well, behold, the Lamb of God. That's verse 36. Upon hearing John the Baptist's declaration, the two followed Jesus, right? Um, so question, uh, why did these two disciples of John the Baptist decide to leave John and begin to follow Jesus? I would imagine that other disciples of John the Baptist heard the same declaration. Behold the Lamb of God, but they did not immediately. Now later on they might have. Um, but they did not immediately turn and begin to follow Jesus. Well, the passage doesn't tell us <laughs> the reason other than the fact that they heard him speak. And based on the comment of John the Baptist, based on his teaching, which continually pointed away from himself to the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who was to come and is now here, it certainly made sense for the two to now follow Jesus, particularly if they themselves were looking for the Messiah based on their understanding of the scripture, which they apparently were actually somewhat familiar with and knowledgeable of, <clears throat> and of course the witness of John the Baptist, whom they trusted because they were his disciples, they were following him. And uh, so although the disciples um, were not just these two, but the disciples in, in you know, Jesus' disciples were generally looked upon by the religious elite you know, those trained professionals of that day, <laughs> they were looked upon as unschooled, ordinary men. They were, <laughs> although they were looked upon like that, they're, they're really men who read and meditated on the scripture and knew about the promised Messiah and apparently were desiring to find him and follow him. This is apparent from our text. And, and if you look, for instance, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 41 and 45, where they declared that they had found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. <clears throat> and we'll see that develop even more as, you know, Nathaniel comes into the picture later on. This passage also tells us a lot about John the Baptist's humility and full acceptance of his role as the forerunner of Christ. John MacArthur says this <clears throat> In his commentary on John, the first 11 chapters of John, he says, John's willingness to un unhesitatingly hand them over to him is further evidence of his self-effacing humility and complete acceptance of his sub subordinate role. <clears throat> Later, John himself said this in, in John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. So how does this apply to us today as Christians and church leaders as we endeavor to evangelize the lost and mature existing believers? The pattern we observe in John the Baptist and the early disciples is equally applicable though, although we are not, we're now actually on this side of the cross. <laughs> Jesus has commissioned us to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. 
or role uh, in effectively carrying out this commission is what? Is to point people to him. Point people to Jesus and not ourselves. And we would take a, a subordinate role in that. Not that we don't have some responsibility or role, uh, but it would be a subordinate one under the leadership of Jesus Christ himself or more specifically, the Holy Spirit. And I think that is what we will see in the conversion experiences of these first five disciples. So let's get back to John, <clears throat> to Andrew and John following Jesus. Although they followed Jesus after hearing John the Baptist speak, this does not mean that they were necessarily converted at that point when they st just started following him around. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but this was, would shortly change, and we're going to see why. Jesus saw the two following him, and he asked them what appears to be a simple, non-threatening question. What are you seeking? <laughs> or in other words, today, you know, we would say, what do you want? You know, why are you following me around? This is verse 38. <clears throat> Jesus did not ask that question for his benefit. Uh, because he already knew what they wanted. He knew their hearts, really. Being disciples of John the Baptist meant that they had repented of their sins and desired to follow the Messiah. So Jesus asked the question so that they would consider their motives for, following, for wanting to follow him. To evaluate what they were really seeking in life. The question, what do you want, <clears throat> has very deep implications for those who take an interest in Christianity and in following Jesus. And it is a question we all have to come to grips with at some point in our quest to follow him. Are we following Jesus because of what, he could, what we could get from him? Good health, wealth advancement in our careers and other areas, a spouse? Or are we following him because we truly believe in him and we desire true spiritual nourishment, which only he could provide? In John chapter 6, we'll come to this, uh, of course, later on uh, in a few weeks down the road, we find the story of John, feed, of Jesus, rather, feeding 5,000. These were 5,000 men plus women and children. He did this after healing their sick. In fact, as you read, and we'll go into that passage in much more details when we get there. <clears throat> but he did this after healing their sick. John tells us in John 6, 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. But Jesus, perceiving, uh, he knew what was in their hearts. So perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In his commentary on this, John MacArthur says this. He says, the crowd's statement made immediately after Jesus had healed their sick and filled their stomachs revealed what the people are really looking for in a Messiah. They wanted an earthly del deliverer, one who would meet all their physical needs, which would include food and health. Those were kind of at the top of the list, as well as freeing them from the hated yoke of Roman oppression. Thus, they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. With him as their provider, they would never want food, <laughs> want for food, or would have the potential to be healed of all their diseases. But Jesus, seeing their motives, would draw to the mountains to be by himself. The people went searching for him, though, and found him the next day on the other side of the sea. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, 
Um, <clears throat> in other words, it's not, they saw signs. They saw the miracle and so forth. But their understanding of what that meant was not there. Um, you know, they had a totally different, whether they, well, I say their understanding, but their whole motives were different in terms of seeing that and thinking, oh, here's somebody that could meet all my needs, so let's follow him. Uh, but because he says, um, truly, truly, I said to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Then he goes on and says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Here we see Jesus strongly rebuking the crowd for their materialism and their inability or, or unwillingness to seek after the things which really matters and, and profits to their eternal well-being. Instead of working for food which perishes, which is the physical stuff, Jesus exhorts them to pursue the food which endures to eternal life. So let's get back to John uh, and, you know, Andrew and John following Jesus now. So instead of um, answering his question directly about what they wanted, they responded saying, Rabbi, where are you staying? The verb rabbi uh, means teacher. Um, and it was a title of respect and honor shown by a student to his master. It appears that the two were not merely wanting to know where Jesus was physically staying, but they were really requesting some private time with him to learn from him, and it was a signal of their willingness to be his disciples. Just as a side note, in the story in, in, in John chapter 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000, they also called him rabbi. <laughs> But interestingly, their whole motives were different, totally different. Um, so we'll see that when, again when we get to that passage. Well, Jesus' response to them, come and you will see, was what they were really hoping for because it was not simple, simply an invitation to, um, <clears throat> to come and see where he was staying. <laughs> but an invitation to come and learn from him. This invitation was the start, really, of their intimate relationship with Jesus. So the two spent the rest of the day and the night with Jesus. Well, John doesn't tell us uh, what was discussed <clears throat> between them the rest of the day and that night, but one can imagine what that was like. Think about that. Private time with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, I mean. Um, think, about the, think about the time when Jesus spent, uh, the, uh, the time Jesus spent with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his, his resurrection. Luke tells us in Luke uh, 20, um, 24 verse 27 that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Another, on another occasion, when he was <clears throat> uh, with the eleven now, uh, Luke tells us in Luke 24, 45, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And I would suggest that something similar to that occurred during his meeting with the two that afternoon. But whatever he said <laughs> to them, whatever they talked about, whatever he said to them, was plenty enough to convince the two, Andrew and John, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Their excitement was off the scale, <laughs> so much so that the next morning, one of them, Andrew, immediately set out to find his brother Simon to tell him the wonderful news that they had found the Messiah, which brings us then to Simon's conversion, Simon Peter. <clears throat> but before we get to him, 
another, another practical application point for us uh, from Andrew and John spending time with Jesus is this. You know, you might say, man, if I wish I was back there at that time and I could have that private time with the Lord. Well, do you realize that you have something much better than that? <laughs> See, on this side of the cross, we can't meet physically with Jesus like Andrew and John did when they first met him. But we have something much better than, that, than they had. See, later on in John chapter 16, we'll, we'll get there after a while, but uh, <laughs> Jesus promised... <clears throat> Uh, <clears throat> Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit who would be in and with all believers, not just them, all believers. And when he, the, Holy, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide them into all the truth. Jesus goes on to say that the Holy Spirit would take the things of himself, Jesus, and disclose it to the disciples. Back then, <clears throat> they only had the Old Testament. Today, we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which more fully discloses and reveals who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. So, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets along with the, with the Gospels and the Epistles, the Holy Spirit is there to disclose to us all the things concerning Jesus himself in all the scriptures. The question is this. Are we taking full advantage of this or do we just take it for granted? And not only that, maybe, you know, do we not even realize that we have that? Um, <clears throat> as we get further along, <clears throat> oh, so sorry about this drainage, but as we get further along in the Gospel of John, we'll be learning more and more about the importance, the role, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So hopefully you'll be looking forward to that. Um, so let's get back to Simon Peter's conversion. So as I mentioned earlier, whatever Jesus shared with the two, Andrew and John, was plenty enough to convince them that he was the long-awaited Messiah. So the next morning, Andrew immediately set out to find his brother to tell him this wonderful news. And uh, having found him, Andrew brought him to Jesus. The word Messiah, or Christ, in Greek means anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointed one was used of very various people, really. The high priest, kings, the patriarchs even, prophets as well. But supremely, the term was used with reference to God's anointed deliverer and king, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was prophesied in the Old Testament to come and deliver his people out of bondage. This is the one whom Andrew is referring to, right? But at that early stage, he and the other disciples likely did not fully comprehend, <coughs> comprehend that as the, as the deliverer who would literally lay down his life as an integral part of God's plan of deliverance for his people. Later on, they would come to realize that. But at that point, probably not. Well, having brought to Jesus, uh, well, <clears throat> having brought to Jesus, uh, Peter to Jesus by, by Andrew, and before a word was said to Simon, um, Jesus immediately gave him another name. <laughs> uh, the name Cephas, translated, that's what's translated Peter. From, so from then on, he was called Peter, or, or Simon Peter, as you see commonly referred to. <clears throat> John does not provide any more information about Peter's encounter with Jesus at this point in time. But... Inquiring minds would want to know why Jesus gave him another name. Peter, which means rock. And there's probably been many speculations about that as well, too. 
Jesus doesn't actually provide any explanation, really, for giving Simon the name Peter. John MacArthur argued that the name Peter <coughs> excuse me, would both inform Simon of the rock that he was to become and challenge him to pursue it. And over time, Jesus would transform Peter's character to match the name he had given him and use him as the foundational leader in the earliest days of the church. D.A. Carson says something somewhat similar. He says that the focus is much less on what this name change means for Peter than on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly <clears throat> and not only sees into them, but so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. Well, <clears throat> when we place our faith and trust in Christ for salvation, the Lord doesn't usually give us a different name than our given name, you know. We're still John or Hugh or whatever. But he does make us a new creation. And he promises to work in our lives through the Holy Spirit to complete that work that he began in us, making us more like him until we see him face to face when we will be like him, right? <clears throat> so that's the conversion of Peter, Simon. Let's now talk about Philip, verse 43. So <clears throat> um, up to this point, the first three disciples were introduced to Jesus by another person. But in Philip's case, Jesus took the initiative in calling him. In fact, based on the scripture, Jesus found Peter, and apparently, it doesn't say that Peter was necessarily searching for him. He wasn't following him. <clears throat> oh, thank you. So Philip, at this point, apparently you know, nothing says that he was looking for Jesus or following, you know, searching for him or anything like that. John does not tell us anything else about Philip's response by faith to, to Jesus' call. But, I mean, what happened? Jesus says, follow me, and he followed him. <laughs> right. Um, his conversion, though, is evidenced by the fact that he followed Jesus. Furthermore, like Andrew earlier, Philip <clears throat> could not keep the good news about Jesus to himself and immediately went and found his friend Nathaniel and shared the good news about Jesus with him. Well, finding Nathaniel, Philip said to him in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <clears throat> Recall earlier in verse 41, Andrew found Simon, his brother, and told him that they had found the Messiah. Philip's words to, to Nathaniel were similar, except that he refers to Jesus. He didn't say the Messiah, but he refers to him as the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also um, wrote. Well, apparently with that description, Nathaniel knew exactly who Philip was referring to, the Messiah. Um, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, uh, D.A. Carson says this, the earliest disciples could not have identified Jesus as the promised coming one, the Messiah, without believing that the scriptures pointed to him. For that was part of the common stock of Jewish messianic hope. You know, later in John 5, Jesus was engaged in a conversation with the Jews who, for the most part, did not believe in him and did not accept him as the Messiah. Yet, they claim that they believed Moses. 
So this is what Jesus said to them in John 5, verses 45 and 47. He said, do you do not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, if you really believed what he wrote, you would have believed me as well. <laughs> For he wrote of me. But, <clears throat> but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Philip was likely aware that his friend Nathaniel um, had a love of the Old Testament scriptures. And that's perhaps the reason he declared to him that they had found the one who fulfilled them, the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense to him, <laughs> right? Nathaniel responded to Philip's declaration which mu with much skepticism. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, we know in hindsight something wonderful came out of Nazareth, right? Although that's not where he was actually born, but that's where he was living. <clears throat> that's where he grew up. One reason for such skepticism was perhaps because Nazareth was such an insignificant town of which Moses and the prophets said nothing about in their writings and prophecies. It may have also reflected Nathanael's own disdain for the town itself, which is a little more difficult to understand since Nathanael was from Cana, which was only 10 miles from Nazareth, but was not much <laughs> of a town itself, as Pastor Billy brought out last week. Well, Philip's response was simple. Come and see. In other words, come and meet Jesus and ask questions of him. And Philip was quite confident that his friend's questions would be answered and his doubts removed. Well, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching him, he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no God. The, word, uh, the use of the word deceit or guile, as, as some translations may say, is conveying something genuine about Nathaniel's character. He's not deceitful. There's no duplicity or hypocrisy in him. His blunt, honest reply to Philip, as well as his eagerness to examine for himself the claims being made about Jesus, reflects this character trait in him. Here, when Jesus made this statement, he may have been alluding to Jacob, who, in contrast to Nathaniel, was a deceiver. You remember that? Uh, before his, his name was changed to Israel. <laughs> but his name was later changed to Israel after he received a vision of God, which totally transformed his character. Nathaniel's question, how do you know me, indicated that Jesus' assessment of him, of his character, was spot on. <clears throat> but he was likely very surprised and puzzled regarding um, how Jesus would know that about him. If that was not shocking enough, Jesus goes on to tell him that before Philip called him, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus' statement about seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree has led really to a lot of speculation among Bible scholars and others about its meaning. One such <clears throat> excuse me, idea relates to the Jewish custom of rabbis studying the law under a vine or a fig tree or an olive tree. And it was a picture of rabbinic seriousness in the study of scripture. It is quite possible that Nathaniel was studying and meditating on the scriptures while under the fig tree. <clears throat> but there really is no certain way of knowing 
what he was doing on the fig tree, because and the scriptures don't tell us that. The main point here is the supernatural knowledge and insight of Jesus, which was clearly recognized by Nathaniel. So Jesus accurately told Nathaniel things about him, his character, as well as what he was doing and likely even thinking, without having met, met him before. In fact, only God himself would have that kind of a knowledge of a person. And it appears that it was on that basis that Nathanael was convinced about who Jesus is. So being fully convinced, Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. It speaks really of him recognizing that this is the one that was to come. This is the one that the scriptures wrote, wrote about. Something clicked in Nathanael's mind and heart, which convinced him that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Very likely, passages like Psalm 139, 1 through 4, may have come to his mind. And there are other passages probably similar. But this particular one says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. As I mentioned earlier, the word rabbi means teacher. That was a title of respect and honor shown by a student to his master. When Nathaniel, ref Nathaniel refers to Jesus as rabbi, he was essentially surrendering his life to Jesus and was a signal of his willingness and commitment to, <clears throat> to be his disciple, to learn from him and to follow him wherever he goes. And really, when you think about disciple and discipleship, that is what true disciple is. Discipleship is, isn't it? <clears throat> Jesus basically affirms Nathaniel's confession and faith in him uh, with, uh, with his next statement to him, indicating that he believed uh, because Jesus told him that, uh, that he saw him under the fig tree. That was a great beginning, um, <clears throat> but Jesus wanted to assure him that he would see and experience much greater things ahead, which will serve to increase and strengthen his faith, his belief, his trust in Jesus the Messiah, and be willing to share that news with other people, with others. <clears throat> Some of those greater things which lay ahead were very likely the many miracles, the, mer the many signs, as John refers to them, which Jesus would perform in the presence of the disciples, as well as others, of course, which would reinforce and grow their faith in him and cause them to experience the abundant life in his name. Such signs, such signs were also meant for unbelievers, that many, many would believe in Jesus Christ and in believing have true life in his name. Well, guess what? One of those signs took place a few days hence from this encounter with Nathaniel in a small town called Cana, which is where Nathaniel was from. <clears throat> in John chapter 2, the first 12 verses, Pastor Billy covered this last week, but this is what it says in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his, and, and his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> they had believed in him before. But this first sign served to strengthen their faith in him. <clears throat> but the greater things which Jesus re refers to is not confined to signs, the miracles. Jesus goes on in verse 51 to say to Nathanael, as well as the other disciples who were there, 
you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is likely referring back to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 in which he saw a ladder resting on the earth with his top extending to heaven and angels of God ascending and descending on it. But interestingly, Jesus does not make any reference to a ladder. Instead, it says that the angels of God will be seen ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what does this mean for his disciples then? And really, what does it mean for us as Christians? Bible scholars and Bible commentators have various ideas about what this means. But one which seems to be to make sense, plausible, is that when Jesus was crucified, <clears throat> was buried, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, the veil in the Holy of Holies, or into the Holy of Holies, God's presence, was ripped wide open, giving free, unlimited access to God and his presence for those who place their faith and trust in the Messiah. Heaven is now opened for continuous communication between God and his people. The, the, representative, the representative of whom is who? Jesus Christ himself, under the title, Son of Man. And we'll talk a little bit more about Son of Man here in a minute. Paul writing to Timothy uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5 says this, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So it's on this basis that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 <coughs> could tell us that we could draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Uh, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's wide open, isn't it? It's not like in the Old Testament. It's a new covenant. Well, the chapter ends <clears throat> with another witness about who Jesus is. <clears throat> well, not actually with another witness about who Jesus is by mere humans, <laughs> right? but by his own self-witness as the Son of Man. Earlier in the chapter, he was referred to as the Word, right? Remember, he was referred to and, and the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. He was referred to as the Messiah by Andrew and John. And he was referred to as the Son of God and the King of Israel by Nathaniel. Now, in verse 51, we are introduced to another title for Jesus, which is the Son of Man. The title Son of Man occurs 13 times really in, in this Gospel of John and several times in the other Gospels. In terms of today's message though, it, was, it has particular significance in reference to the promise that disciples, that the disciples and by extension all Christians shall see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In the New Testament, Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, a study of the Gospels indicates that Jesus most often refers to himself as the Son of Man and not really even the Son of God. A common understanding and usage of Son of Man implies and speaks of Jesus speaks of his humanity. In other words, he is fully human, right? He is, of, of course, fully God at the same time. <clears throat> but the name Son of Man is not only Jesus embracing his humanity, but is also expressing the fact that he's here as a representative of humanity, of humankind. He was fulfilling a role as our representative. Adam served as our, as our representative in the Garden of Eden. And through his disobedience, God counted 
all of humanity guilty because of what he did. Similarly, Jesus was our representative and obeyed on our behalf where Adam had disobeyed and failed. So Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 18 and 19. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification life for all, all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that when one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. <clears throat> and so that's the representative part. So he wasn't just here as a human being, but he represented us um, in many different ways. We won't you know, have time to get all into all the details there. But the Son of Man is not only Jesus embracing his humanity and the fact that he is fulfilling a role as a representative. This title, Son of Man, also refers to the highly exalted Christ. So in Daniel, Daniel was given a, a prophetic glimpse into the future in Daniel 7, and this is what he saw. He says, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. But remember this, in his exalted, in his exalted state, Jesus still bears the, the image of humanity and carries the scars in his hands and side and feet as marks of his humanity and him laying down his life for those who would place their faith and trust in him so that they would have life in his name. And so he's the one mediator now between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But as we talked about already as well, the veil in the Holy of Holies or into the Holy of Holies, God's presence was ripped wide open giving free, unlimited access and his presence for all those who place their faith in, in Jesus the Messiah. Heaven is now open for continuous communication between God and his people. <clears throat> and guess who is our representative in that regard? Jesus Christ himself, under the title, Son of Man. So at this point, we'll close. Um, Alan, if you have a, a song you'd like to do, that would be great. Um, I think really, at this point, this is an open invitation to take advantage of the access to God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ.